Brothers and sisters, we come now to uh, the opening up of God's Word, and once again we come to Psalm 71, uh, verses 1 through 24. Um, so, in a sense, uh, bear with us as we read the entire psalm, even though we're only going to be looking specifically at verses from the first um, eight or nine um, verses this morning. Uh, reading from the English Standard Version translation. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak continually concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together. And they say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. For there's none to deliver him. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh, my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, with the Lord God, I will come. I will remind him of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, for my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all, all those who are to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. And I will praise you. I'll praise you with the heart for your faithfulness. Oh, my God, I will sing praises to you with a lyre. Oh, holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's pray once again. Father, we would pray that uh, the same Holy Spirit who inspired this psalm uh, would also illuminate our hearts and minds to understand it and to especially appropriate the truth as it is in Jesus, as we find it in the psalm. We pray for that. We know that the scriptures from the very beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, testify concerning Christ. And so it would be our deepest desire that as we travel through the psalm, as we glean uh, truths that are eternal with respect to truth, and which are applicable with respect to life, uh, that above all, you would be working in us what is pleasing to you, forming us into the likeness of Christ, that we might live to give you glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, once again, let me begin with this reminder. This psalm, like many, many psalms that we find in the book of Psalms, is really one of those God help me psalms. 
It's one of the, the major themes that we find as we read through the book of Psalms. Uh, the believer, often David, is in great trouble. And his prayer is a, a to help. Again and again, we find that refrain, we find that theme, we find those petitions in the book of Psalms. There's a lot to understand and learn from that. Uh, and even as we uh, work through this psalm, we'll be reminding ourselves that that, that theme uh, really tells us something about our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. Uh, the psalmist also, as Spurgeon calls it, the prayer of an aged believer. Uh, but it's not just about an aged believer. As we noticed last week, it's a psalm that is also uh, very much about God. In fact, we can say that this psalm it really is a double portrait. It describes both the life of a faithful believer, but it also describes the faithful believer that he believes in. And hence the title, Long Life, meaning Long Life of the Believer, and Faithful God. Again, like many psalms, this one is intensely biographical. Uh, and in fact, this one covers the whole span of the psalmist's life and his relationship to God, because in verse 6, he makes reference to his mother's womb. Uh, verse 9, he makes reference to the time of his old age. But in all of this, we have this, in this double picture that we have of, of God and of the believer, uh, we have a consistent theme of dependency. That is, dependency upon God. Uh, it, it, it begins from the very beginning of this psalm all the way through. Dependency on God. And to recognize that this kind of dependency is by God's design. Which is to say, we are to be led through life as Christians, as believers, in such a way that we will be constantly dependent upon Christ. Because dependency upon God, dependency upon Christ is not only a necessary thing, but it is a preeminently good thing. Because dependency upon God gives God glory. Living in dependency upon God is a consistent act of worship. It is a God-glorifying manner of living. And that's the main theme, the main, the main lesson that we can gain out of this psalm. Now, Again, last week, uh, we focused upon the first four verses. Uh, we focused upon the portrait of God that essentially established this truth, as the psalmist proclaims it, that God is the God who is there. And as the God who is there, he's a listening God. He's the righteous God who is imputed to believers the righteousness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation and basis for him being a God who saves and as a God who saves, he's the God who, by his strength, always protects those who are his believers. And, and the very sense in which the psalmist is praying to God for all of his help uh, declares to us that God is a merciful God. And just once again, everything that the psalmist says about God, uh, we also can and we must say about Christ. That was the first message. The second message, we come to begin to look more deeply into the portrait of the believer and the believer's life. And specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8 and these four characteristics. Uh, the psalmist talks about being a lifelong believer, first of all. But then he goes further. He really talks about being a lifelong dependent believer, and in that long life of dependency upon God, he makes it clear that he's a worshiping believer. And then finally, we can see in this that he's also, in terms of his lifelong believing, a testifying believer. So those four particular traits, uh, a, a lifelong believer, dependent believer, worshiping believer, and testifying believer for kind of biographical perspectives that really give us insight into how God works in our lives, uh, perspectives that can help give us the sense to make sense of life in this world, 
as well as to keep us focused and centered on the meaning and purpose and significance of our lives as those who have been called and redeemed to give God all worship and glory. So I want us to begin, really with verses 5 and 6, to consider the fact that the psalm writer here declares, really, in what he has to say, that he is a lifelong believer. So he says in verse 5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. So here we have the psalmist referring to the very beginning of his life. In fact, back to even before his birth. And then we know from verse 9 that he writes this as an old man. Verse 9, he says, do not cast me off in a time of old age. So this is the story and testimony of a lifelong believers, lifelong believer. Now, two observations we really need to make concerning this fact and reality. The first would be this. It is possible to be a Christian and to be a believer from one's earliest existence in this world. Even if the psalmist is using a bit of poetic hyperbole, which I don't think he is, and it's an argument that would require me to go far afield in a sense from this particular psalm, but I don't really think he's indulging in poetic hyperbole or exaggeration. The psalmist is basically testifying to the reality that he has been a believer all of his life. Christ has been his hope, his trust, the one upon whom he has leaned even from his mother's womb. Now, I want to stress that this is not an uncommon testimony, especially for those who grown up in a believing family. I have known a number of believers who have said to me, uh, I have never known a day in my life that I did not know Jesus. Now, interesting though, thinking back to my college days, which many of you will recall was during the, the Jesus movement era, uh, the, the, the rule of the day in terms of being a Christian was a born-again conversion story. That was the real proof that somebody was a Christian. And it led to some funny conversations with other Christians in our fellowship, Christians who had been uh, actually born into and raised within a Christian home because they had no conversion story. And, and th those who had become Christians through that conversion, born-again experience kind of situation, would sometimes look at uh, these other believers as, well, like they weren't normal. <laughs> like they were somehow possibly not even really Christians. The only understanding they had of being and becoming a Christian was this conscious point of decision, praying the sinner's prayer, undergoing believer's baptism, those were the anchor points by which you could actually demonstrate or prove, yeah, you really are a Christian. In any case, look at what the psalmist says here. That he has been connected to God. God has connected himself to him even from his mother's womb. Now, uh, in church history, there's one rather outstanding example of a lifelong believer uh, from shortly after the time of the apostles. In fact, this is one of those men, uh, the martyr Polycarp, who had been a disciple of the, of, of, of the apostle John. So Polycarp's life begins uh, before A.D. 70, and it ends somewhere before 160 uh, B.C., uh, here he is, the Bishop of Smyrna, and living a long career, a long life, and he gets arrested by the Romans. Now, this is sort of the end of a time of persecution. And he stands before this Roman magistrate, this proconsul, who was to be his judge. And he's uh, required to acknowledge Caesar. 
as his Lord. And he refuses. <clears throat> so then the proconsul takes a different different tact. He says, well, swear, reproach quite Christ, and I will set you free. And that's when Polycarp responds with these famous words. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That Polycarp had served Christ for 86 years has often been taken as the strongest kind of evidence that Polycarp's Christian life began in his earliest childhood, that he was birthed and raised in a believing home. Excuse me for a moment. But we also have a New Testament example of apparently a lifelong believer as well. <clears throat> this is the testimony that the Apostle Paul gives about Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 16. <clears throat> Actually, just 14 and 15. Paul says this about Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And now from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> this is the English Standard Version translation, and I'm speaking specifically about the word childhood. But in fact, this particular Greek word, which is brephes, is the word normally used to distinguish a baby or an infant from a young child. That is to say, if you go to the Greek dictionaries, the Greek lexicons, the primary definition here is a baby, <clears throat> either newly born or not yet born. So this word specifically refers to babies, infants, even preborn infants. Among the gospel writers, only Luke uses it, especially in the infancy narratives surrounding Jesus. For instance, it's the word that's used in reference to John the Baptist in his mother's womb, <clears throat> Luke chapter 1. And it's also with reference to the newborn infant Jesus when he's lying in the manger. The word brephes, specifically describing the fact that they are infants and even a preborn infant in the case of John. Now, Luke has one other usage. Uh, it's a passage that is shared by both Matthew and Mark. Uh, this comes in Luke 18, 15 to 17. It's a story of those parents who are bringing their little children to Jesus to be blessed by Jesus. And, and this is what Luke records, that, you know, that let the little children passage come to me. Luke records it this way. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the word Luke uses here is brephes. That is, the word he uses for child or children, the word that Jesus uses for child or children is paideia. And my point is simply this. <clears throat> Paul uses the word for infancy to describe when Timothy began to be given the knowledge of the scriptures that made him wise unto salvation. And that's exactly how the NIV translates it and appears to be more, more accurate. The NIV says, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, in any case, <clears throat> This biblical truth is significant. It is possible and not at all uncommon for God to work in a very young child to bring that child to salvation. It is possible and not at all uncommon to become a Christian, to become a true believer, even from one's earliest existence in this world. Now, clearly, 
God doesn't do this in every case. God doesn't do this in every Christian family. But it is something that young parents ought to see. God can work this way. So this is a strong encouragement to give even our youngest children uh, the daily diet of the scriptures as part of their earliest life experience. That perhaps in God's grace and timing, they might have Timothy's testimony. That of being a lifelong believer. <clears throat> now there's a second observation out of this that's also just as important. This observation looks at the other end of life. What we need to note here is that the believer's life does not get easier as he gets older. Even if you've been a Christian all of your life, and you are now an old Christian, <clears throat> and I emphasize that because I'm an old Christian. Uh, my grandchildren here call me the old man. <clears throat> this does not mean that life's challenges are easier to manage. Let me share this from the standpoint of a personal perspective. Again, when I was a young Christian, when I was in college, I thought, <clears throat> if I follow Jesus for the next 50 years, won't the Christian life be easier? Won't life in general be easier to face and, and easier to handle? That is to say, won't a life you know, 50 years of trusting Christ, 50 years of seeing him at work, bring about in me this, like, great skill set in being holy, a, a great skill set in being godly and wise and competent as a Christian? Won't the Christian life get easier to live that I'll have such a solid set of habits that living like a Christian, thinking like a Christian at all times would really be, like, you know, second nature? I reasoned that way on the analogy of a worldly perspective in terms of how we generally gain skill and competency the more we know something. Uh, we, we gain a greater proficiency with almost anything that, that we come to know of in this world if we're practicing again and again and again. You know, we, we grow in our ability with respect to something. And therefore, when challenges come up uh, in our work or, or whatever, problems that we might face, we, we say, well, I can handle this, even with greater success than I could a few years ago, uh, greater achievement, greater ease. That is to say, often in our professions and jobs, the jobs get easier the longer we are with it, because the problems that come up are basically problems we've seen before. The psalmist shows us that this isn't the case in the life of a believer. This old man who has been a believer all of his life, still faces in his old age circumstances that yet cause him to cry out desperately for God's help. You see, the reality is that the enemies of his life and soul have not gone away. And I don't think I can emphasize how important this is to realize. There does not come a time in our lives when living for Christ or dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil ever gets easier, we can't look forward to some kind of Christian retirement from the battle, at least not in this life. You see, not every gospel song that we've been taught to sing really gets this right. I'm thankful that this one isn't in our hymnal but it's one I learned as a youngster. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Now, some of you know that. You probably have sung it. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. The sentiment is wonderful. The sentiment is great, but it's not quite accurate. Really, it's like this. Every day with Jesus is harder than the day before. Every day with Jesus, there are new things to deal with, new struggles, new situations. Life is hard. Life 
doesn't get easier as we get older. Christ doesn't change. But life does get increasingly difficult in so many ways in the world in which we live. And here's the lesson. If life doesn't get any easier, the need for dependency upon God never decreases. If life gets harder, the need for a deeper dependence upon God, upon Christ, is ever growing. And that naturally leads to this second perspective, the second picture here, where the psalmist speaks about this matter of dependency. A lifelong believer must be a lifelong dependent believer. Verse 6 in particular, he says, Upon you I have leaned from my mother's womb. So this old man began his spiritual life leaning upon Christ, leaning upon Christ as his rock and his refuge, and he's continued to lean upon Christ ever since. Now, this idea is, in fact, so contrary to the American narrative. The American, I, the American narrative moves in the opposite direction of dependency. Uh, the American narrative and the idea of dependency are almost contradictions. That is to say, we get all sorts of messages within our culture that preach self-sufficiency. Back at the end of March, Pastor Chad Vegas posted on his Facebook page a copy of his nephew's public school assignment. I'm going to quote six of the seven statements that his nephew was required to learn how to speak, to speak it at home, to speak it at school. So here are six things that he was supposed to say. First, number one, I matter. Number two, I was born an inherently good human being. Number three, I have infinite power. Number four, I have unlimited potential. Number five, we control the future. And number six, we are, quote, once in a lifetime, unquote, people. Now, as Chad noted, this is public education's catechism, which means this is the reigning philosophy, not just of the educational system, but of the government that provides and empowers this education. So what is preached is this infinite power and limitless human potential. And so the message is, uh, human beings, you're not dependent creatures. You don't need God or salvation or Christ. Now, that idea is not anything new. But it's not a new sentiment. You know, we can go back to the latter half of the 19th century and we can see this stated strongly in any number of places. But my favorite happens to be that poem titled Invictus by the British poet William Ernst Henley. And I've referred to this poem. I've, I've recited this poem a number of times. This may be my fourth or fifth time I've quoted it over the years. But it goes this way. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, if this is true, then dependency upon God certainly isn't needed. And in the American experience, you know, much of America's 
westward expansion, much of the ethos that developed in all of that was, you know, this rugged individualism, you know, this, this foster, this kind of lone ranger mentality, uh, this perspective and attitude that, you know, I can do this myself, I can handle this on my own. In other words, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, because I have this infinite power, I have unlimited potential. And of course, the problem with all of that, for everyone, is the fall, right? We were never created that way in the first place, and because of our fall, because of our sinfulness, it's, it's so clear, ought to be clear, to everybody that we're not like that. That is, intrinsically, we don't have that ability. We're not masters of our fate. We're not captains of our own soul. And yet, this streak of independence, this idea that I can do it myself, I can do it my own way, I can do it on my own, we, even as Christians, are infected to some degree with this perspective. And here's the truth. It deeply messes up the Christian life. Because when this carries over into our walk with Christ, we will seek to live out the life that we're called to uh, from our own resources, out of our own uh, unsanctified habits, uh, out of our often unbiblical but regular patterns of how we do things, uh, we tend to think like this. I am so grateful I'm justified by faith, but, goodness, I'm going to be sanctified by my works. We're blind to the incredibly deep need to lean upon Christ. We just don't live out the truth of what Jesus himself taught John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, in response to that, the psalmist is presenting and representing the proper and necessary approach to living as a believer, and that's dependency. The psalmist says, upon you I have leaned. It is this resting and depending on the presence and power of Christ. Now, Listen to the New Testament description of this uh, from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure, the treasure of Christ, the, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of grace. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then later in chapter 12, in that verses 7 to 10 passage, where Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh, the messenger from Satan that comes to afflict him, and the the three times he prays for Christ to take it away. He reports in verses 9 and 10, But Christ said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, this is vital doctrine. This is vital truth. The power of Christ comes to its full perfection and fruition only in the context of our weakness as believers. And that's why the apostle goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is such an incredibly important theme that uh, the great theologian and author G.I. Packer has written a significant little book entitled Weakness is the Way. In which, in which he describes this, this matter of spiritual dependency. And, and this is what he says on this issue. He says, the truth, however, is that in many respects, and certainly in spiritual matters, we are all weak and inadequate. 
and we need to face it. Sin, which disrupts, disrupts all relationships, has disabled us all across the board. We need to be aware of our limitations and to let this awareness work in us humility and self-distrust and a realization of our helplessness on our own. Thus, we may learn our need to depend on Christ, our Savior and Lord, at every turn of the road, to practice that dependence as one of the constant habits of our heart, and hereby to discover what Paul discovered before us, when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, this is God's clear design to have us be jars of clay who must depend upon the grace of Christ at all times. I deeply believe this is why life is so hard. Because God uses the hard things of life to drive us to this truth and to drive us to Christ because we're jars of clay and we can't really live for Christ. We can't really live a Christ-like life in any way on our own, by our own resources, by our own wisdom and power. We must realize that our insufficiency to handle life in our own strength, by our own wisdom, it's a real insufficiency. And God does constantly give us more than we can handle on our own. But that is for the purpose of showing us that we must lean on Christ for everything that we need. Now, in the context, then, of the difficulties and struggles of life, we come to this, this third aspect of the lifelong believer in which it's presented as a, a life of worship, a lifelong life of worship. So verse 6, he writes, My praise is continually of you. Verse 8, My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Now this testimony is that of a lifelong worshiping believer. Now, uh, this is the evidence of what we've said as the essential reason why Christ has redeemed us. It is for the sake of worship. Uh, that we see here what Jesus said to the woman at the well. The Father seeks such to be his worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And so the psalmist sees that in his lifelong dependency upon God, uh, the constant practice and the constant purpose is to praise God, it's to worship God, it's to give him the glory. But think about the context, because that's so important. It is in the midst of a life of hardship and difficulties that we find this old believer praising God continually. He is having his mouth filled with God's praise and glory all the day in the midst of hard times. That's the context in which he is continually worshiping and praising God and giving God the glory. Yet, I think we could say that at the level of common experience, it just seems a whole lot easier to give God songs of praise when our hearts feel like singing. It, it's hard to do so when we are in pain uh, and when we are hurt. Uh, I think about this from a, a medical story perspective. Uh, I had my first kidney stone uh, early in the 1980s. Uh, it was a Friday, began on a Friday night. I'd gone to the gym that day. I'd worked out, went to a church dinner and a home that evening with lots of people. And I was experiencing the soreness at bedtime. And I thought maybe I had pulled a muscle in my lower back on the right side. But then about 4.30 in the morning, I had this awful, jolting, electrifying, deep pain that woke me up. And at 6.30, I'm being taken to the hospital, to the ER, and I'm moaning, and I'm sighing, and I'm groaning, and I'm praying. The 10-minute ride seemed like it was forever, and I'm writhing around on the ER 
gurney bed for about 10 to 15 minutes until the doctor comes, quickly ascertains that it's got to be a kidney stone. So three minutes later, a nurse comes with a shot of Demerol, which is a synthetic opioid narcotic. And two minutes after that, I am praising Jesus and singing God's praises. I sounded like a charismatic Pentecostal. And I basically, I am so high. I am so way beyond pain. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I'm just praising God for it. And I thought afterwards, it was so easy to praise God when the crisis was, was, was over. And I had something that, actually lifted me up. It was so hard to even think about giving God praise when I was so deeply confounded by the hurt and the pain, which carried with it some confusion and some fear. Yet, let's note, the psalmist talks about continual praise. And here is something that a growing faith comes to realize. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he was worthy of praise and worship yesterday, he's worthy of praise today, even in the midst of our troubles. But here is the good and helpful perspective. It is the case, based upon all of these psalms that we're looking at, based upon the teaching of Scripture, it is the case that our prayers for help our prayers that indicate we're leaning toward Christ and leaning on Christ and he's our trust and he's our hope. We're depending upon him. Such prayers of dependency are actually praising Christ because these prayers are statements that we find Christ and Christ alone to be our hope, our trust, our rock, our strong refuge. And so turning to Christ in this way is to give Christ the glory that he deserves. Because there are two very, very different ways to respond to the awful things of life. We can follow the counsel of Job's wife to Job, curse God and die. Or we can call upon the name of the Lord God and to call upon his name and our time of greatest need and greatest hurt and greatest pain is an act of praise and trust and dependency upon him. Now this then naturally leads into the fourth perspective that we find here. That the believer that is described here, the autobiography of this psalmist, uh, presents a lifelong testifying believer. And this thought is anchored in verse 7. In the midst of trouble, uh, in the midst of a trouble that's brought against him by his enemies, this old believer has kept God before him as his hope, his faith, his trust, his strong refuge. He has done this in such a way that his trust in God has been evident and visible. Even when these enemies believe, as we read in verse 11, that God has forsaken him, and so he's fair game to be further attacked. What we basically see here, the basic truth is this. His faith, while under attack, was a testimony that honored God. For in verse 7 he says, I have been as a portent to many. Now, it's that word portent that needs to grab our attention. Uh, portent is how the ESV and the NIV translate this. The New American Standard translate this Hebrew word as marvel, and the King James as wonder. Well, in the Hebrew, the very first definition of the two definitions that are given means this. Uh, a sign or wonder as a display of God's power. And then the second usage is something that is a sign or a token of the future. So clearly it's the first meaning that the psalmist is speaking of here. In essence, what our old believer is saying, that his trust in God has testified to these unbelievers in such a way that to many of them, they are in fact a sign of God's power. Uh, his life of trust and worship. 
in the midst of everything that has afflicted him, even in the midst of, of their attacks upon him, is like a miracle. His life in the midst of these hardships is a testifying life, a life that testifies to God, testifies to Christ, that here is where he has found his strong refuge. Here is where he is enabled to keep praising God in the midst of very hard times. Now we see this illustrated in one of the stories of the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. It's the story where, where Paul and Silas have come to Philippi. And the story begins in Acts chapter 16, verse 12. And they're going to find themselves in the midst of hardships brought on by their enemies. What happens there is Paul casts out a demon of divination from a young slave girl. Uh, now she can't tell fortunes any longer. So her owners have lost their source of revenue. And so they, they drag Paul and Silas before the civil magistrate. As they are before the magistrates and they're getting accused, Luke writes this in Acts 16.22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, that last statement is a very significant statement. What were Paul and Silas doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God in the midst of their battered and bruised condition with their feet locked in stocks. No comfortable way to position their bodies really for rest or sleep. These men were doing what the teachings of the Psalms have always taught believers to do. They were praising God in the midst of their hardships, in the midst of their suffering. They were worshiping the Lord and Savior. And the prisoners were listening to them. And you know the rest of the story. A great earthquake happens. All the prison doors open. Uh, everybody's bonds are unfastened. The jailer wakes up, arrives upon the scene. He sees the prison doors open, assumes the prisoners have all escaped, and proceeds to draw his sword to kill himself. But Paul sees this, and Paul calls out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And this remarkable sequence of events leads to the jailer taking Paul and Silas into his home. Hearing the gospel, he believes he and his family are baptized. Now, clearly, Paul and Silas, what they had gone through, and then they're worshiping and praising God in the midst of all of this in prison, their unwillingness to take advantage of the opportunity to escape, all of these things made their lives a marvel, a wonder assigned to this Philippian jailer of the power of God. And God used this to bring him to Christ. Now, this is the important lesson in perspective. It is God's design that we would be testifying believers all throughout our lives. But it's also God's design that at least in the lives of some believers, under some occasions... He's going to cause them to be a wonder and a marvel to others because Christ is their strong refuge in the midst of the most difficult, difficult circumstances. And when God designs to do this, when God designs to make our lives a portent to others, he will distress our lives in some manner so that our dependency will be most evidently Upon him. And it is this dependency on Christ that demonstrates to unbelievers the powerful reality of God in our lives. Let's put it this way. A believer will never have a life that is a marvel or portent to many unless he's tested, tried, and afflicted as a believer unless his life shows dependency upon Christ. Now, 
coming to the conclusion, which is really just a temporary recess because we have two more messages on this psalm. These verses have given us four spiritual perspectives on the life of a believer. And taken together, they give us insight into how God works in our lives uh, to help us make sense of what is God doing in the midst of these difficulties and hardships and challenges that we face in this fallen world, uh, as well as to keep us focused and centered on the meaning and purpose of the very significance of our lives. And with respect to that purpose and significance, let's remind ourselves again of what this is, how, in fact, it's stated for us. In fact, it, it is sung for us in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, that angelic citizenship concerning Christ who say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. A great statement about the very purpose of the redemption of Christ, that Jesus has died to redeem us so that we might all be priestly worshipers of the living God, for such are those the Father seeks. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would pray that you would enable us to be faithful, faithful believers, worshiping believers, dependent believers, testifying believers all throughout our lives. By the power of Christ, the work of your Holy Spirit in our weakness and dependency, uh, work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. For the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen.